0: the Blinks Labs headquarters in Berlin, Germany. This is the Blinkist podcast. I'm the producer, Ben. Nice to be back. Haven't been around for a minute, but I'm excited to be back in the hot seat. Let's get right into it. If you've been following this podcast, you're familiar with our interviews in which we go beyond the books to dig into some of the ways the most inspiring, thoughtful, and intelligent people think and act. This week, Blinkist Magazine editor-in-chief Caitlin Schiller spoke with David Allen, known as the man behind the productivity system Getting Things Done, and the best-selling book of the same name. Here, most of us refer to it in hushed tones like the name of the Lord or something, G-T-D. On today's episode, they discuss what he calls clear space and how easy it is to screw it up in your head. They talk about the happiness industry. They even talk about Abraham Lincoln, among other things. And near the end of the interview, you'll find out why David Allen isn't a productivity or efficiency robot at all. He actually developed the system to have more time to do what he likes, like practicing martial arts. Here's Caitlin and David Allen. Hi, David. Hi.
1: Hi. So what did your life look like before GTD? We've read that that you've had numerous professions, um, and I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, it depends on what you mean by before GTD. Before I wrote the book, I had I was doing this work for twenty five years. I mean, it took me twenty five years to sort of figure out what I'd figured out, and that it, and that it was unique and bulletproof. Uh, so I was doing the work, uh, you know, in terms of uh, both researching and formulating and implementing this methodology since 19, since the early eighties. So so, and then you know, prior to that, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I helped a lot of friends start their own businesses. I was a good number two guy. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in God, truth, and the universe and the sort of internal world instead of the external world. But I had mm-hmm. friends in the external world and they helped me pay the rent. So you know, I helped manage a service station, helped a couple of guys start a restaurant in LA, and helped a guy manage a landscape company and you know all kinds of stuff. So that's a lot of those professions. They weren't exactly careers. They were just you know how many different kind of jobs that I'd had. I'd just walk in and look at what they were doing and say, "Wow, there, there's probably an easier way you could do that. You know now they call that process improvement. I was just lazy, and I looked around,, and said, <laughs> you know, excuse me, this is not as efficient as it could be." <laughs> so, uh, you know and then I'd fix it, and then I'd get bored, and then I'd go move somewhere else. And so then I discovered they actually call people something who do that, and they get paid for it. So consultant, now I are one." So hung out my shingle. Uh-huh. 1981 and started my own little consulting practice. And then, you know, there were two kind of vectors there. One is, um, you know, I was hungry for some models that would work in case I showed up and it wasn't obvious how to help people. It'd be nice to have some models to apply. At the same time, I was also interested in what I refer to as clear space. You know, uh, I'd be in the martial arts and meditative practices and other things like that, I discovered how nice it was to have sort of nothing on your mind and have a peaceful, you know, head and be free of the static in there. But as I got more complex in my world, discovered that that was pretty easy to screw up clear space. So I was kind of hungry for what that was for myself and found some great techniques, had a couple of great mentors that taught me pieces of this. And then um, uh, I turned around and started to use those techniques with my clients, and they also worked with them exactly the same way for me, more control, more focus, more clear space, you know, for everybody. So that was the sort of the early beginnings of this in the in the early to mid nineteen eighties. And then I was just doing work one on one with you know, as we didn't call it coaching back then; it was just consulting with you know friends and people, small businesses and whatever. And then a, a head of human resources for Lockheed saw what I was doing. He said, "Wow." You know that, those kind of results we really need in our whole culture. So he asked me if I could work with his team to help design a training program that would reach a lot of people with this methodology as opposed to just one-on-one. And that was when, in 1983-84, did a big pilot program for Lockheed with the training I designed and delivered, and it was quite successful. And so I kind of, again, didn't really know what I'd come up with because I was not familiar with the big corporate training world. And, um, but they thought it was great. So I just kind of followed my nose and just had sort of boutique consulting and training, you know, company, uh, just sort of lifestyle consulting companies for, you know, several years, and just sort of followed my nose and just all referral-based uh, work that we were doing, and so, at a certain point, you know, I bought out a couple of partners and sort of shrunk it back to just me and my wife, and um, put my name on the you know, on the masthead because my name had more equity really than the process did. And it was easier to sell a personality than the process. So Mm -hmm. that became, became David Allen company in 1996, 97. And then I had a bunch of advisors just told me, Hey David, you you really ought to write a book. And I said, poof, well, I didn't know how to write a book. Uh, but you know, what the heck? And it it was about that time that I, by that time I had figured out that this was pretty unique and nobody else had done it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure. I had no idea how much the world was going to how much uptake there was going to be on this? I just needed to write the manual in case I got run over by a bus. You know, it's actually, well, at least somebody at some point would figure this out. But let me get let me get it down. And so I really just put through everything in there. I you know when I wrote getting things done, and it took four years to do it from ninety seven to two thousand and one when it was first the first edition was first published. You know that took a long time just to get it all in there, and I really put the whole kitchen sink in there. A lot of people get overwhelmed when they read the book. Going, oh my God, look at all that stuff to do! And I said, Well, I, I just wrote the manual. I didn't. I I figured it took me 25 years to figure out what I'd figured out, and that it was unique, and probably the rest of my life to figure out how to educate people with this and get it to stick. So, you know, I'm still in that process.
1: It's interesting that you say that you were you were doing this work for 20 years before you even wrote the book. I guess that that's true of a lot of people. Once they sort of reach their, their quote-unquote calling. Do you think that, that callings are a thing that actually exists?
2: Well, you know, growing up as a Presbyterian, I guess I should think that, you know, that, that yes, that, that people have a calling. I mean, that was part of the, I guess, the, the the Presbyterian ethic anyway, that everybody had a, that there was a calling for people out there. I, I don't know that, that I would say that everybody has a calling. I think everybody has a unique signature about what they do, and you know the more authentic you are with that the more you're probably going to be gravitate towards something that resonates with with uh you know wh- what your talents are so i think there there is a there is an appropriate use of one's talents i think if you if you have talents and are not using them i think there'll be a, a kind of an edge and a frustration that that people will have until they you know line those up a little bit better
1: yeah going off of what you just said a little bit do you have any advice for, for young people who are just at the start of their careers about, about finding their signature, about finding what they should be doing, quote-unquote, with their lives? Is there anything that you would recommend to them?
2: Yeah. Uh, be willing to embarrass yourself with whatever your fantasy is about what you would li- really love to do in your life if you could truly have it the way you wanted it. Oh, wow. And, and, and then ask yourself, what experience do you think that would give you? And then ask yourself, what could you start doing right now that would start to give you more of those kinds of experiences?
1: Mm-hmm. You said be willing to embarrass yourself about what you think yeah. your
2: dream is. You want to be you know Do you want to be prime minister of of, of Germany? Do you want to be the, uh, the an incredible rock star you know musician? Do you want to be a the, you know the great American novelist? Do you want to be uh, I don't know. You know, but what's your what's your fantasy? What what if you truly could be whatever you wanted to be, and time and money were no object whatsoever? What would you be doing? And you know, give yourself permission. You know, but again, people are often too embarrassed, even internally, to be willing to admit that's really what I w- that's really what I would love to do. Uh, but you don't have to tell anybody. So you know, <laughs> so just don't don't be too uncomfortable, at least with yourself. But ask yourself. You know, let's suppose you say, uh, I, I actually did that exercise one time many, 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 many years ago when I was confused about, didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure I picked the right thing. You know, th- didn't know what my destiny was. And oh my God, what if it's the wrong thing? And oh, you know, I just agonized over that for too many years. And then uh, had a friend ask me, he said, Well, what is your fantasy? And I said, You know, and I just, I was willing to admit, I said, You know, to be president of the United States. You know, and, uh, I used to carry around a penny in the U.S. You know, when I was growing up there, in the as a little kid, because of Abraham Lincoln was on the penny, and he was just my 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 hero because uh, he just affected so many people, you know, in in such a positive way. And then my friend asked me, he said, "So, what do you think that experience would give you?" I said, "Well, it would give me people's attention, so I could be able to you know to help them." And he said, "Well, what else could you do right now that would be that you could?" Uh, be able to support people and get more people's attention and I, I forget exactly what it was right then but I went oh okay got it and you know I started to move forward to start to move toward those kinds of things that gave me more of that sort of internal experience and haven't looked back since so it's great advice to just know that there's some part of you that kind of knows what this is but you may not have uncovered it yet
1: that That sounds pretty good, what do you think David of all of this this chasing after happiness that people do um there's a, a huge truck in happiness manuals and self help guides people just want to be happy quote unquote do you think that that all that stuff is is worthwhile or just what do you think in general about the happiness industry
2: yeah I don't know happiness is kind of uh, happiness is overrated you know, you know i, I I, I think satisfaction is a much better word. Hmm. You know, satis is enough and faction factory to do, you know, so enough appropriate doing, I think, so you feel fulfilled and satisfied as opposed to giddy, hee ha ha. You know, I, I'm, Again, nothing wrong with being happy and having fun and laughing is a great healing, you know, phys- physio physiological mechanism. So, you know, that, that I just found out about laugh, laughing, laugh yoga, you know, which is which is taking over the world apparently. What people just are, they just spend hours just laughing, just laugh, <laughs> and it's, just, it's apparently quite healing and you know, wonderful. So. You know, I I think all of that's really good stuff. Certainly, being happy is a lot better than being depressed. You know? <laughs> Certainly, probably probably healthier for you too. So, yeah.
1: uh, right.
2: You know, happiness is. You know, happiness has tendency to have a bit of more of a, an emotional uh, aspect to it, and your emotions go up, down, and sideways. You know, so you know, as I'm not a motivational speaker, the more motivated you get, the more depressed you tend to get. You know, so uh, you know. I'm, 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 not, I'm not, you know, when you go up emotionally, there's a likelihood you're going to go down as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm much more into the even keel side of the game and balance and, and a, sense, a sense of inner peace, I think is, is to me, a, a richer place to operate from than just being happy.
1: Huh? Could you talk a little bit more about the more motivated you get, the more depressed you are? Is that just because of the, the dip that you mentioned, or is there something else? I just that was a really interesting statement to
2: me. Well, you know, it, it depends on what you mean by motivation. I mean, most motivational speakers get everybody jacked up and enthused and hot dog. I'm going to go out and take over the world, and then you go out and you don't take over the world, and then you beat yourself up. So, right, uh, uh, I think slower, steadier wins the race.
1: Right. And that, that seems to, to align with what your your system actually is. It's breaking breaking something down into steps that are doable and manageable and actually um, visible in in the short term, but with a long-term goal as opposed to setting some sort of highfalutin ideal future.
2: Well, I think ideal futures are great. I mean, the future never happens. It's, a, it's an illusion, but it's a handy one. Because if you think of how cool your life could be five years from now, then uh, you know, it you'll tend to give yourself an image, a positive image. That's the value, though, is not in five years from now because that never shows up. The value is in how that image is going to affect perception and performance right now. Hmm. So, so holding pictures in your mind, that's extremely powerful. So, whatever images you have, and I, you know, I don't like the word discipline. That sounds like too much work and sweat. But d- direction, I think, is a better word. If you direct, if you direct yourself appropriately. Come on, you guys know hol- holacracy. You know, absolutely. You know, you, you're going to you know predicting control is not that smart a thing to do no definitely it's not a, you but but pointing yourself in the right direction which is what your strategy meetings are designed to do to make sure we're we're moving in the right direction but then be careful about your commitments because you make a commitment without looking at your whole game you're going to screw up so there's i think i think you know directing yourself appropriately as opposed to setting hard You know, goals that you beat yourself up if you don't meet them. Mm -hmm. You know, you need you need to be able to reconstruct them. I don't think I've ever really achieved any specifically hard goal. You know, if I've got the way goals set, I, I tend to think that life happens to us. You kind of slide into life. You know, I, set a, I set a goal like, hey, I want to be down the street and then I start moving down the street and then I get halfway down the street and then I see a, a road to the left that goes, well, wait a minute, that, that's really more where I want to go. So I never got to my first goal, but I couldn't have seen that other street without moving toward the first one. So you know, you know in the martial arts that I spent a good bit of time in, when you're sparring with somebody, you don't want to stand still. you're always in motion because in motion, it makes it much easier to turn even 180 degrees than trying to go a new direction from a standstill so it's a lot easier to 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 change when you're in motion and so being in motion appropriately i think this level is a is a is a motion level it's a doing and an active level and so if you're into really being in peacefulness i think that has to be matched or you don't you don't achieve that without an appropriate kind of direct directiveness and uh, and activity mm-hmm. so you know the people that i know that are most into being are highly doing people
1: is doing the same as being productive
2: well pro- being productive just means producing desired results or experiences
1: mm-hmm. so then how is how is how is a high doing person different from a highly productive person yeah,
2: they're pretty much the same thing okay I mean, achieving a desired experience. I mean, if you go to a party to boogie and you don't boogie, that's an unproductive party. (laughs) Right? Well, come on. If you go on a vacation to relax and you don't relax, that's an unproductive vacation. Productivity simply just means producing some desired outcome. And if you're trying to produce an outcome that you're not in yet, then yes, you're going to have to do some things in order to be able to produce that. Mm -hmm. And even doing could just be stop doing anything, but that's still doing something doing nothing.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: By the way, the you know, a, a hallmark of how well you do GTD is how well you can do nothing.
1: Mm, mhm. Do you think that we work too much today that people are too focused on producing and being at work and being beings who are their jobs?
2: Well, only if your job is not what you want to be doing.
1: Mm.
2: That's, you know, come on. That's why my third book was called Making It All Work. <laughs> yes, it's because it's all work. That's true. And you know, if you think about the double meaning of that, if you make it all work, I mean, come on, is work a bad or a good thing? Hey, my flashlight works. Is that bad or good? No, that's great. That's right. So how do you make things work? Well, work, <laughs> you know, so think about all the, the multiple meanings of that. If you say, and so it's all work. Anything you want to get done that's not done yet. Wow, I need to take a nap. You know, go take a nap. That's work. That's something to do I haven't done yet. Mm. I, need to, I need to go paint a painting. Great. That's work. Why? Wow. But most people have work as a pejorative.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, there's, there's, I have to go work. You know, that's that's too much work. You know, I say, well, I understand what you mean. It's like, yeah, you know, you need to be able to balance that. You know, you need to be able to balance your your mental thinking. You need you need rest and spontaneity and brain and 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 daydreaming in order for your mind to be optimal. In terms of how it works, so yeah, I, you know, there's a there's a sense of relaxation and rhythm. I think that's that's important for people to have if you if if you want what you're doing to be sustainable. So I think the sustainability factor is is the critical factor. But you know, come on, it's it's all it's all work. The universe is always on. We're always on. You know, going to sleep is work. So. You know, it's like, what work are you doing? In other words, what activity are you doing? What are you engaged in right now? And I think that's the, just the critical question. What are you doing? And is what, is what you're doing what you ought to be doing? But I understand where the, the question is coming from. Is like, do we all work too much? I mean, are people spending too much time at work when they really have a family that they need to spend more time with? I think everybody's got it. you know, it is always has that challenge to to decide how do you allocate limited resources. Right. You know, management by its very definition is the allocation of limited resources. So you're, right. con- you're constantly having to say, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do that? Should I do that? You know, right now I'm saying, should I just stop answering this question, go on to the next one? Or should I, just, <laughs> should I go ahead and riff? I'm constantly thinking, you know, should I, shouldn't I? I don't know. Well, I don't know. You know, so you, I don't think you ever stop that. that that's you know, the nature of sort of our, our experience here is learning, learning from our choices that we make about where do we put our attention.
1: What you said about work really made me, made me think. I mean, work can be framed so positively or so negatively. Um, and people seem to more often have negative thoughts about it. What do you think that comes from?
2: I don't know. I think because a lot of people haven't feel like they haven't shown up yet in the world and that the job they're doing is not the thing that's going to allow them to really show up in terms of who they really are to totally express themselves. So, you know, I think it's just the, 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 the the angst, if you will, of, of sort of the human experience out there that, you know, we're never enough, you know? And so there's all kinds of ways people will, will parade. I'm not enough. I'm working too hard. I'm not enough with my family. I'm, I'm not being creative enough. I'm not enough. You know, come on. You know, negative self-talk is just so rampant out there uh, in terms of, you know, what, and I think that's a, it's a way the ego tends to protect itself. It's just saying, okay, I'm, I'm such a good person that I need to feel bad about how I'm not that good yet. It's a strange, it's a strange twist of what people do sort of internally. If I beat myself up sufficiently, that means I'm a good person.
0: Today's Blinkist podcast was produced by Caitlin, me, Ben, and Odie Constantino, a man who's more resilient than the average desert shrub. If you're looking for more Blinkist interviews, check out our page on iTunes or SoundCloud. You'll definitely want to find the one we did in the spring with Jonah Berger, the author of Contagious. Visit Blinkist.com magazine to find more great stuff in our second magazine issue. This one's on productivity and a transcript of this interview with David Allen. And if you like what you heard, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating on our iTunes page and told other people about it. Either way, you can feel free to email Kaylin and I with whatever's on your mind at podcast@blinkist.com. That's podcast@blinkist.com. Thanks again for listening. See you guys soon.